think it has probably come to your attention by this time in the retreat that we spend a considerable amount of time speaking about letting go. Um, if it hasn't come to your attention yet, I would suggest that you wake up. <laughs> um, this time that we spend, this amount of time we spend speaking about letting go and renunciation, I would like to assure you that this is not a particularly personal obsession. Um, it's not something that we have a thing about. Rather, it is because it is just so intrinsic to being awake, and it's so intrinsic and essential to everything that this teaching speaks of. I also suspect that by this point in the retreat, you probably do come to notice quite clearly and immediately the ways in which you are affected, the ways in which your personal world is affected by holding and the ways in which you and your personal world is affected by letting go. Every moment in our lives and in our meditation where we experience tension or conflict or resistance or separation, those are actually the moments that tell us of the need to let go. Certainly, our minds can come up with lot, lots of other things that should happen in those moments of tension or conflict or resistance. You know, our minds might tell us, well, you know, I have to find the cause or I have to resolve this or I have to change this or alter this. And yet, if we take away many of the kind of camouflages, that we place around suffering, it tells us of the need to let go. Every moment in our lives when we experience, and in our meditation where we experience openness and connectedness and spaciousness, where we experience immediacy and clarity of being, those moments tell us a great deal of the freedom that is found being able to let go. The most painful moments of our lives where we feel burdened by alienation or disconnection, they speak to us of holding. The most joyful moments in our lives of compassion, of love, of sensitivity, they tell us the story of our capacity to let go. Our whole life experience teaches us over and over again this one simple lesson that holding and clinging brings pain and contraction and separation that openness that letting go brings happiness brings harmony brings peace and intimacy there are no exemptions perhaps to this 
exceptions to this basic teaching. It would be perhaps difficult to find one area of our lives which would not be liberated by letting go. Disconnection is the child of clinging. Just as awakening and closeness is the child of renunciation. Our life experience teaches us this again and again. Intellectually, we know it. And in our hearts, we also find ourselves yearning for the freedom that letting go actually brings. And yet, there can be, it seems, a missing piece in the puzzle. That our hearts yearn for us, Intellectually, we understand it. It is still very, very difficult at times to actually apply and to actually live in a spirit of renunciation. It is difficult at times in our own minds and our own lives not to make exceptions to this primary law of life. But sometimes it is true that we feel a little bit lukewarm about renunciation. Sometimes we find ourselves reluctant to practice it. One reason for that is, of course, our association. You know, we've all seen the pictures of ascetics with their ribs standing out and their eyes protruding, you know, living on scraps and in caves. We've all seen the stories and the, uh, the pictures and heard the stories of the renunciates who have turned away from the world. There is something perhaps admirable that we find in those stories and renunciation seems great as an ideal. And yet at times we feel ourselves somewhat reluctant to follow in those footsteps. It doesn't feel like our path. And you know, at times we don't always like the way that renunciation looks. There are also times when we are afraid to let go. We fear that we will be too vulnerable. If you think of many of the areas where we hold and cling, it's a kind of armor for ourselves in the world particularly when we perceive the world as a place that we do battle in. Many of the things we hold on to, such as identities or roles or habits, opinions, uh, beliefs, systems, many of these things do serve us in a particular way as a kind of protection from others from being invaded, from being taken advantage of. And at times we are afraid of a kind of unconditional letting go that we will end up as a kind of a sponge or a marshmallow in life, you know, just being shaped by whatever is most powerful in the world around us. There is also, the, of course, the factor of of pleasure and gratification that makes us see renunciation not as liberating but as leaving us deprived 
So sometimes we dread or fear even the whole area of letting go. We know that holding causes pain and yet we also perceive pain in renunciation. At times in relationship to renunciation we ask ourselves what are we going to lose? What is it going to cost us? Are we willing to pay the price? These are sometimes the scales upon which we weigh renunciation. And we see actually we're not really that afraid perhaps of losing the props in our lives. We're not necessarily so afraid of losing our possessions or our opinions. You know, because we've lost them before, you know, we've survived. What we are more afraid of losing at times is the more intangible reassurance and comfort that those things offer to us. Letting go, the loss that frightens us is the loss of security, pleasure and identity. These are the primary resistances to renunciation, security, pleasure, and identity. They create a fundamental fear within us to be deprived of those things that makes us reluctant, at times unwilling, at times unable to really let go. Fear does make renunciation difficult, but equally and clearly, it is no less difficult and no less painful to live within a personal world where the boundaries are created by fear and by what we hold on to. Perhaps the first step in cultivating the willingness to let go is to really explore what is possible, what shift may be possible in our understanding, in our attitude, in our relationship to letting go. Perhaps to question whether we can really accept that letting go is actually an act of love and care for our own well-being and for the well-being of the world around us. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, well, what will renunciation or letting go actually offer to us? What difference would it make in our lives if we didn't hold on to anything? What difference would it make in our lives in our inner world, if we didn't live with any kind of desperation of feeling that I need and I must have, what kind of happiness, what kind of freedom would we know in our life if we didn't live within the boundaries of fear?
What would our lives be like if we weren't afraid of losing anything? If our trust in ourselves and our sense of who we are did not rely in any way upon props or upon armor, if we lived without senses. You know, in this path, you know, at times it seems that there is a big gap that exists between awakening and suffering. And many times we hear, you know, that it is not possible to kind of uh, gradually and progressively cultivate enlightenment, that there is some leap of consciousness that is made. It is true that in this path we can cultivate many things. We can cultivate clarity, we can cultivate effort. And yet, when we come to that place of actually making a leap in our consciousness from what we know to what we don't know, from what is familiar to what is unknown to us, I think we can see in that the place and the power of our willingness to let go. In Zen teaching there is a, a wonderful line that is used it says, you know, when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. Sometimes I think it is helpful to look at the different dimensions of our lives that actually would be transformed by a willingness to let go that can be nurtured and cultivated. Fortunately, we don't really have to look very far to see where renunciation applies. We need to look just at the areas in our lives where we feel limitation, where we feel pain, where we feel fear, where we feel sorrow, where we feel separation. Then we look at, begin to look at what is possible, what difference letting go would make. Now, one of the areas, of course, in our lives where renunciation is very crucial is on our relationship to the world around us. Now, clearly, none of us are monastics. We live in a world of forms, of objects. We, too, by the identities that we manifest in the world, the forms we assume in the world, communicate, too, through those forms our own values, what we are dedicated to, what we hold to be precious. We are called to form a relationship with this world that we live in. There are many options and possibilities of relationship. There are relationships which can be ecologically balanced, which can be wholesome, which can be ethical. It's also clear that it's very possible to live in this world in a way which is unbalanced which is not ethical, which is not wholesome. What is the factor that makes a difference? It is not just knowledge, it's not just whether you're a Buddhist or not a Buddhist. There is something within our relationship to the world on a moment-to-moment -moment level that allows it to be an ethical relationship or that makes it unbalanced. 
Now, I think we do live in a culture at times that promotes quality of relationship between the inner and the outer, which is essentially not balanced, which is essentially at times unwholesome. There's certainly any relationship where we objectify the world, where we objectify the world in which we see the forms in our world simply as existing in order to serve our pleasure or our security, or our comfort, or our gratification. This is clearly not an ethical relationship. Any relationship where our, our, our living in the world is in pursuit of things that we can use to measure our own success or security as an individual through calling things mine. This is not a balanced relationship. But we can learn to subscribe to a path of accumulation and holding because we are taught over and over in our world, you know, to have is more important than to be. To gain is more important than to let go. To accumulate is more important than to be without. And in many ways we learn to define ourselves by what we have. You know, I mean, we may not be sitting here, you know, planning our kind of next campaigns on the stock market, but we can see the way in which we can learn to define ourselves by what we have, even in the world of experience, and actually even in the world of renunciation. You know, there are those who, you know, superficially or outwardly have nothing, and yet carry within them a grasping mind which says, you know, look how terrific I am, I have nothing. You know, this is now not necessarily less a burdened mind than a, the mind that's kind of walking, you know, driving around in a rolls. We need to see the way in which we invest power into things because we feel powerless ourselves. We invest the power into things see them as being able to provide us with identity and security to be someone because we feel disempowered or empty within ourselves. And then things, not just material things, but experiences and labels and images and identities, all of these become very important because they give us a way of creating a center of self then I know myself by what I have. We say I am because I have something, whether it is tangible or intangible. We can, we can only create that center by making this universe that we live in into a world of objects that we then invest the power in, either to threaten us or to enhance us. So the things that we hold on to, we don't hold on to them just because we, we like them or we think they're special, but because of the power, to, power and security and control that they represent to us that this is this way of objectifying the world and worshipping a center of self is a path of disconnection. It's a path that breeds suffering, inwardly and outwardly. 
sudden we could ask ourselves, are we actually made any freer or any happier by having anything at all? By feeling in bondage to that which we have? Or is the very notion of having something or of being someone, isn't that the very foundation of insecurity? Because the moment that we feel I am something or I have something that makes me someone, that very notion which is based on grasping, of course, immediately introduce, introduces the possibility of loss and of fear. Fear of loss, because after all, if who I am is defined by what I have or what I think I have, then who are we without it? Then fear enters into our inner world and our outer world. To follow a path of letting go does not mean in any way that we have to retire to a cave or divest ourselves of everything that is in our world. Certainly restraint may be a very major part of an ethical relationship. But there is something far deeper in an ethical relationship than just restraint or just doing without. I think it is probably some truth in saying that an ethical relationship exists as long as we are willing to question a center of self and as long as we are willing to question the, the relationships that are born of that center, then there is a possibility of an ethical relationship to the world. Another area, I feel, another dimension of letting go, which is truly important, is in terms of something which sometimes is very crucial to us, this whole sense of personal space and territory, um, which again has so much to do with who we think we are. Personal space, personal territory sometimes is, allows us to stay or exert a certain measure of control in our lives. I think coming into a retreat situation, that whole notion of personal space and our attachment to it is actually very much challenged. Sometimes we're not even aware that we have grasping onto notions of personal space and territory until we come into a retreat. Personal space in a retreat. You know, it's my cushion. It's my walking spot. It's the invisible walls I have built in my room which define what is mine and what is clearly not yours. Personal space is around the notions of resting somewhere and of needing to rest somewhere. And I think sometimes our notion of physical personal space very much kind of indicates or represents also this notion of having to rest in something, an opinion, a view, a reference point, a particular way of seeing identity, that level of personal space which exists much more on a psychological and emotional level able to say this is who I am, this is where I am. 
You know, sometimes our sense of where we are in a retreat physically kind of is a reflection or a microcosmic view of the way in which we create these positions in relationship to the world and the universe. It is interesting to see the ways in which our sense of personal space can be so easily intruded upon. How often our invisible lines seem to be crossed over by someone else. We have not bothered, of course, to inform everybody else in the retreat of where those lines lie. And yet somehow we expect that they're going to be observed. You know, the horror of finding someone in your favorite walking space. Or my chair in the dining room. You know, don't they know that's my rocking chair? I always sit in that rocking chair. You know, they should have noticed by now. Even that sense of, of personal space in terms of sound. You know, that you sit, you know, and you're happy, happily listening to the birds singing. You know, but to the person shuffling beside you. You know, this is a whole different category of sound, you know. This is intrusion. You know, I very rarely, I mean, sometimes I've heard complaints on retreats about the sheep, but, you know, the birds haven't actually got it much yet. But another person, here we have someone, you know, who's trying to stop me meditating. That's what they're here for, you know. They're here to interfere with my being, you know, by coughing, by shuffling, by sniffing, you know, as if my freedom is somehow dependent on the absence of somebody else's sinuses, you know. The way in which we kind of grapple with the world because of my space and how my space needs to be. What we experience in those moments, of course, of being invaded or in being intruded is our own sense of holding. This is the direct encounter with grasping. It is a direct encounter with the suffering of grasping. The moment that we have a my or a mine or an I, we have disconnection. Many different feelings arise in disconnection, anger, resentment, resistance, disappointment, frustration. And we see in those feelings that we actually don't have personal space, that we don't actually have territory. What we are much more is imprisoned by the ideas a personal space of mine. Sometimes it seems very difficult to step out of those prisons. You know, I read an interview of an environmentalist who spoke about the difficulty of moving uh, a group of tigers from an area in Africa where they were unsafe to an area which was protected where they would be safe. And the difficulty was not in catching the tigers. They could catch the tigers, they could sedate them, they could transport them, put them in a cage, fly them to this new area where they would be safe. 
the difficulties came after the tigers woke up and spent a little time recovering in their cage. The difficulty came in getting them to leave their cage because that had become familiar territory. What they knew outside of the bars was unknown territory. And their greatest challenge was to encourage the tigers to take advantage of the freedom that was offered for them. Now, we are not always living, of course, in a place of resistance. I wouldn't like to imply in any way, you know, that we're all walking around like knights in armor, you know, constantly struggling with the world and resisting and holding and grasping and all those things, because none of us do that all the time. We have our moments, though. <laughs> there are times, many times, and we all find in our experience that we're actually very able to accommodate the unpredictable, able to accommodate things which have previously disturbed us, moments when we don't feel threatened at all by the world around us, moments when we're able to receive thoughts which, you know, the sitting before seem to devastate us, they just flow through the consciousness. We all experience changes in relationship to that which we experience, feelings which are terrifying in one moment. In another moment, we have plenty of equanimity and clarity and capacity to accommodate. Something has changed in those moments. What is different is not necessarily in the sounds or in the thoughts and the feelings or the experience that we are receiving. What is different is at times both our inner relationship and the degree to which we feel at home within the present moment. If we think about spaciousness, it has nothing to do with physical location. Spaciousness does have to do with non-resistance. It has to do with openness. It has to do with not being afraid. It has to do with trust and with faith. Knowing those qualities within ourselves, the changing feelings, the changing thoughts, the changing impressions of our world, are received without reaction because they are received without holding. We are at peace. To be at peace with what is creates an immense amount of spaciousness. It brings an ease to letting go where we can move with freedom in the world, in a crowd, and be, or be alone, and never feel apart from anything. That spaciousness is not something we always just have to passively wait to happen. There's a real value in consciously exploring those boundaries created through grasping. So what we say is mine. So what, in relationship to what we say is me. Instead of holding onto any opinion, any reference point, any image, any judgment, any territory to experience what happens when we consciously relate and extend ourselves towards what is. Instead of creating a center inwardly, which is separate and apart from everything else that we must protect, to learn what it means to be present unconditionally 
to be unconditionally present. This is the great teaching of this path, to be unconditionally present, to make no hierarchies, to believe in no judgments. Then we discover what peace is. And peace is certainly not the absence of the disturbing, but being present without judgment. Now there is that that kind of verse from Chang Su where it speaks about a person in a boat crossing a river. And then if a person in that boat collides with another boat and sees someone in the other boat, that they will shout at them and become angry and tell them to steer clear and shout again and tell them what a fool they are. And all of that shouting, all of that anger, is because someone is in the boat. But if their boat collided with an empty boat, they wouldn't be angry. They wouldn't shout. And in the last part of that verse, Kung Su says, you know, if we're to empty our own boats crossing the river of the world, that we will have no opponents and no one will seek to harm us. Now, we can spend a lot of time shouting at the world or shouting at ourselves. Much of our shouting takes the form of judgment or opinion that tell us not so much about the world, but tell us a great deal about ourselves. And the judgments and the shouting that we do so much governs our response to being present in this moment, the way in which we create opponents. That shouting and those judgments actually don't bring us closer to anything or to anyone. They very rarely, if ever, lead to a deepening in understanding, in openness, or in connectedness. But instead, that shouting leads to a further separation and division, and so much judgment is born of fear. It's a defender of the holding mind. In, in the Four Noble Truths, in Buddhist teaching, it says that craving is the cause of suffering. And, you know, I think sometimes Westerners hear that and they think, you know, no, no, you got it wrong. You know, it's too simplistic. You know, there are many causes of suffering. You know, my grandmother's a cause of suffering. You know, my neighbor's a cause of suffering. My body's a cause of suffering. You know, my teacher's a cause of suffering. My roommate's a cause of suffering. You know, my, my lifetimes of doing this are a cause of suffering. You know, this is what makes me suffer. That makes me suffer. We can think of so many causes of suffering and how many of them come down to craving and how much craving comes down to fear. 
if we think you know expectation sure expectation causes suffering expectation is wanting wanting things to be different wanting what we don't have wanting to get rid of things wanting things to end trying to get what is not here wanting is the nature of separation wanting creates judgment wanting does create judgment I want something from somebody when I judge them I want them to be different I just simply cannot accept who they are judgment directed towards ourselves is also wanting I want myself to be different it's not good enough it's not perfect enough it's not who I should be therefore I judge on the basis of my own standards of acceptability and unacceptability this is suffering you know suffering is not you know being burnt on a stake suffering is this moment to moment experience of separation this is suffering I think it is very important not to think of letting go or renunciation as some kind of destination that we arrive at in the future when we have perfected wisdom. The only place letting go actually transforms our world is in our relationship to this present moment. Non-dwelling. This is the visible life of letting go. This is the visible manifestation of letting go. It is also the visible manifestation of our dedication to the end of suffering, to cultivate non-dwelling. You know, I think, you know, sometimes in our path it feels useful to dwell on things. It feels useful to go into things. It feels useful to find causes. It feels useful to analyze and to, you know, dissect the processes of what is going on within ourselves. And I think probably there are times when it is useful that that reflection or dwelling can bring a certain clear comprehension. But it doesn't bring an end to grasping. Cultivating non-dwelling is actually a practice of liberation. Dwelling is a practice of limitation. We can dwell on so many things on past, on future, on present. We can dwell upon thoughts, upon opinions, upon feelings. We can dwell upon reactions and upon judgments and surely every time we dwell we construct the world that we live in often in a very unconscious way. We construct a reality which we then inhabit with loneliness because any reality that is constructed on the basis of dwelling is only our reality separate and apart from all others through dwelling we believe those constructions as being the truth dwelling is that repetitive turning of our attention to thoughts, to feelings, to memories, to images Sometimes it feels as if we have no choice, that we must do this in order to understand something. But we must see that it's through every dwelling we do not only create realities in the present, but those realities are always related to past realities. 
the mind can only construct with the bricks that it has. And the only bricks that the mind has to construct with is that which it knows. So any reality that is created through dwelling is not only creating a construction in the present moment, it is also breathing life into history, into personal history. Because all that the mind can know is related not only to the present, but to what we have known before. The past is our way of knowing the present. When we see through thoughts, through beliefs, through judgments, through opinions, there certainly is an intuitive capacity within the mind which is not solely based upon the past, but it's not nurtured through dwelling. Is not just his spaciousness through letting go. Dwelling becomes a kind of habit, just like judgment is a habit. I'd like to read you something from a Chinese sage. Was questioned, what should the mind dwell upon? And the answer, it should dwell upon non-dwelling. What is this non-dwelling? It means not allowing the mind to dwell upon anything whatsoever. What does that mean? Dwelling upon nothing means that the mind doesn't remain with good or evil, with being or non-being, with inside or outside, emptiness or non-emptiness, concentration or distraction. This dwelling upon nothing is the state in which it should dwell. Those who attain it are said to have non-dwelling minds. In other words, they have Buddha minds. As long as your mind dwells upon nothing, there is nothing you can attach yourself to. If you want to understand the non-dwelling mind very clearly, when you are sitting in meditation, be aware only of awareness. Allow yourself to make no judgments. Think not in terms of good or bad or anything else. Whatever is past is past, so don't sit in judgment upon it. For when thinking about the past disappears by itself, it can be said there is no longer any past. Whatever in the fu- is in the future hasn't arrived, so don't direct your hopes and longing toward it. For when thinking about the future disappears by itself, it can be said there is no future. Whatever is present without dwelling passes instantaneously. Just be aware of your non-attachment to all things. Don't nourish any desire or aversion in your mind. For when thinking about the present disappears by itself, it can be said there is no present. A mind that dwells upon nothing is a Buddha mind, enlightenment mind, uncreated mind. It is what the sutras call patient realization of the uncreated. Non-dwelling, clearly. It is a great art, but it's not very complicated. It's not very complicated. You don't have to figure out how to do it, you just do it. You cannot figure it out. You cannot figure out how not to dwell. 
almost every time we try and figure out how to not dwell, we're trying to figure out how to make a deal. You know, how I can hold on to something. Okay, I won't dwell upon this, you know, this particular judgment. Why make these distinctions? Why make these distinctions? We cannot figure it out. It is something simply we must apply. I think in cultivating non-dwelling, we, are, we appreciate actually the spirit of letting go of enunciation on a moment-to-moment level. That is what is living renunciation, dwelling nowhere, abiding nowhere, resting in nothing. Then I think in that we do begin to perceive the transparency of this construction. We begin to see very clearly the transparency of suffering in that it is not necessary. It is not necessary. This path, really, in its deepest sense, is about learning how to live in a spirit of freedom. It means, yes, being present with all that is present, being present in the presence of all things, but being present in an empty way. Being present in a way in which we perceive the transparency of things. Surely here we see the transparency of separation and the end of suffering. It doesn't mean discarding anything, denying anything. It doesn't mean avoiding anything. It's truly a life of appreciation. I think this art of transparency, this art of non-dwelling, for me, is very much expressed in, in a poem or a verse the Buddha used. He said, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. The path is, but no traveler upon it is seen. And freedom is, but not the person who enters it. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings live in the spirit of letting go. We have just a couple of minutes quietly and then we'll have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.